This inspiring message comes to you from Impact Church in Kingston, Ontario, where we are committed to living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. If you were not here last Sunday in particular, I want to encourage you guys to listen online uh, to the message from last Sunday because some of what I'm going to refer to today is a reference point to last week. I'm going to try the best I can to give context to it so that those who are hearing this for the first time this morning won't be lost. Um, How many know that there are people in our lives that shape us and help us to believe that we are actually more than what we think? There's key people in our lives that we can look to. So some of them are parents, some of them are friends, some of them are teachers that have had a profound impact on our lives. And I can say uh, without hesitation this morning that my mom is that person uh, in my life growing up. She saw something in me that I did not see. And for those that don't know my mom, I can quite comfortably say she wins the Sweetest Woman of the Year Award every year and has for years. I always said, Mom, you got to bottle that sweetness and sell it because it's just ridiculous. She is incredible. Um, And this could be shocking to some of you this morning, But when I was growing up, I was a mama's boy. Shocking, I know. Some of you are like, I never saw that coming. I know, it's it's shocking. But I was. And in some ways, I still am. And uh, that's okay. Sandra's okay with that. Right, honey? Thanks for your underwhelming support. Okay. All right, that's awesome. And I'll tell you why she was so important to me. You take care of those things that are most valuable to you. You watch out for those people that are most valuable to you. You care deeply about those things that are most valuable to you. And as I was thinking about this thought, about what it meant for my life looking out for my mom, I was taken to a scripture in John chapter 19 where Jesus looked out for his mom. And it really struck a chord in me. And I want to, if I can this morning, I want to spin off this. And I want you to see a whole nother realm of what it means to live like you are more than what you think, okay? John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, just to give a bit of the context to this story, we are literally at Jesus' crucifixion. We are at the end of his life. He is hanging on a cross. He is literally declaring his final words before he dies on that cross. And one of the most uh, important things to him at that moment was to look out for his mom. And it says in John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27 in the NLT, you can follow behind me on the screen. It says this, standing near the cross were Jesus' mother mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Lots of Marys. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Question for you this morning. Why did Jesus entrust John with what was most valuable to him? According to Jewish tradition, his brother should have done that. Some of us know the story in Acts chapter 15 of the Jerusalem Council, and the guy that actually led that council and gave insight into the churches uh, regarding doctrine and kind of future hopes and process and logistics and all of those things, 
was James, the brother of Jesus. So we knew he had a family. As a matter of fact, the Bible references that he had multiple brothers. So my question is, is why in the world, especially according to Jewish tradition, why in the world did Jesus not entrust his mother to his brothers? We can take it one step further and say, where was the extended family? Didn't make any sense. Some of us could say, well, you know, Jesus literally put Peter in a position where he was the head of the church. Why not Peter? What was unique? What was special about John? I've often thought this, and this is kind of a heavy thought for a Sunday morning, and so please don't get discouraged by this, but as parents of 17 children, you often think of things like, just so you know, I only have five, but it feels like 17. So when you have a lot of kids in your home, one of the things that you process through from, a stamp, from the standpoint of responsibility and things like that is a will. You want to make sure that, what, your most precious assets are taken care of. And the most precious asset is your children. So here's a question for you this morning. Who have you entrusted, or if you don't have children, who will you down the road entrust with your children's care if you're no longer on the earth? Who? I guess the better question would be, why? Why them? I believe that there is such an incredible lesson about understanding the Father's love that is wrapped up in Jesus' decision to entrust John with the most precious thing to him, his mother. Right at the end, there's something that can be uh, literally taken apart and we can look at. Something has captured Jesus' heart regarding John that we need to see because if we can see it this morning, it's going to absolutely transform how we view everything else. I, I believe that when Jesus looked at John, Jesus saw somebody that had a heart for his mother the same way he did. I believe that when Jesus looked at John, he saw someone he could trust with his mother the same way he trusted himself with his mother. Somebody that would look after her, somebody that would honor her, somebody that would go above and beyond just getting his free $20 for childcare. And actually investing into that relationship to such a degree. Why in the world was there only one person? And why in the world was it John? Well, I want to just, I want you to think about something for a second before we kind of go along here. Jesus in his life was surrounded by many people. The Bible talks about him being surrounded by multitudes. Right? We can remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It literally talks about a, a sermon that lasted all day where Jesus is talking to the multitudes about what it means to have faith in him, what it means to live a life for Christ. So he understood the multitudes. But Jesus also sent out the 70. And what did the 70 do in Luke chapter 10? The 70 were sent out, and it literally says that wherever you go, Heal the sick, raise the dead, deliver those that are, are literally uh, oppressed by demons. And that's what they did. As a matter of fact, the 70 came running back to Christ. Luke chapter 10 and said, Master, you would not believe what we've done. And he's sitting there going, try me. Yeah, I walked on water, you know, you know found money in a fish's you know, mouth, you know, things like that. You know, that's pretty cool. If you don't know how to pay for a bill, you go into the water and go open up a fish and there's a... A million dollars, that's great. I would wish that could happen today. That would be awesome. You know, like, Lord, just open that and just be it like an unlimited Visa gold card just for me. <laughs> yes, Lord Jesus, just do it for me because I'm your favorite. Anyhow, okay. But he understood the 70. They came back and they were excited about what they'd seen. And you know what Jesus' response was? Just be thankful that we have relationship. 
Be thankful that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. In other words, be thankful that your identity is not in what you do, but in who you are through me. Amen? Because I tell you, in ministry life and in church life, I've grown up in church my whole life, and if, if I can be brutally honest for a second this morning, I am sick and tired of hearing one more person talk about their ministry. If I hear it one more time, I think I'll lose my mind. Because I look at them and I say, it's not your ministry, it's God's. And we're just, we're just here to serve God and his people. That's all this is about. That's all this is about. Jesus himself said, he who is greatest in the kingdom is he who serves. Not as self-serving, but he who serves. But he went one step further. He just didn't deal with the 70 and send them out. He actually had 12 that he personally invested in. 12 people that he invested three and a half years of his life into. He talked about them. He shared stories with them. And he brought insight and understanding to the things that he was sharing to the multitudes, but in a personal way so that that group could understand. They understood relationship. They understood fellowship. They understood connection. They understood community. Why? Because Jesus poured into 12. But out of the 12, he had three. Three of the disciples that saw the glory of God. If you'd never heard that term before, this is what the glory of God is. The supernatural, weighty, awesome, majestic presence of God in action on the earth. They saw the glory of God beyond any of the other nine or the 70 or the multitudes. Why? They were the ones that were present when God called forth Lazarus from the grave and said, Lazarus, come forth. They were the ones that came into the room with Jairus' 12-year-old daughter who had already passed away, and he had sent every other unbelieving person out of the room, and he said, Peter, James, and John, come in with me. They saw Lazarus come back to life. They saw the dead girl, 12-year-old girl, come back to life. You know what else they saw? They were the only three disciples there on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transformed right before their very eyes. They were the only three. But out of that three... There was one, John. What was so different, so unique, so special about John? Well, I'm going to tell you. And I believe, as I explained to you John's decisions in his life, I am praying and believing God that you're going to see your life in a completely different way this morning. You're going to see your relationship with God in a completely different way this morning. Why? Because Jesus entrusted John with what was most valuable to him, his mother. There's reasons for that. What is it that John had? What is it that John understood? What was it that he, he lived his life by? What was it that he had? And can I say this morning, what John had will trump and supersede and, 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 and literally uh, entail what the three had, what the 12 had, what the 70 had, and what the multitudes had. So many people are in the multitude level trying to get to the 70, to the 12, to the 3, to the 1. And when you get to the 1, you have everything else. You don't have to look for something. You don't have to ask for something. The first key, and we've already talked about it for three weeks, but I'm going to go into a bit of a different angle with it this morning. The first key is identity. Pastor Ray brought the foundation of that whole concept so beautifully. It was so awesome. I tried to kind of play it out last week with the concepts of the three chairs, that we live in three different realms of our life. The, third, the first chair was the, the chair of the world, that we live according to the world's ideas, the, the world's philosophies. The second chair was the chair of self. We live according to ourself. Yes, we can be saved. We can have a relationship with Christ. But so much of our life choices are determined by how we feel, determined by what we want to do, not by what God wants to do. And then the third chair is the God chair. 
This is where we live according to the kingdom of God. And the first and most important thing about that third chair is when people live in this concept called their identity is in Christ. Can I uh, make a little personal observation this morning? You can look at the book of Matthew. And never once in the book of Matthew does Matthew describe himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Mark is not there either. Luke, who was a really smart guy, wrote the book of Acts and the book of Luke, was a doctor, was incredibly brilliant, was a theologian, was a scholar. He didn't say that once. But John, five different times, references in his own book that I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. Kind of like Moses. I'm the meekest man on the face of the planet. Who wrote the book? Moses. That's humility right there, I'm telling you right now. But I want you to see something that is so uniquely different. We hear that, we hear it the wrong way. But there's something so significant about this concept. So significant. Five different times it's mentioned. The first time is John 13, 23, where it's at the Last Supper. The second time is John 19, 26, at the crucifixion. The third time is John 20, verse 2, where it's at the empty tomb. The fourth time is John 21, 7, the breakfast by the sea, just before Jesus uh, ascends to heaven. And John 21, 20 is with Jesus just before the ascension. Okay, five different times. I want to make note of one thing. All five times happened at the end of John's life with Jesus. Or I can say Jesus' life with John, physically on earth. Didn't happen in the beginning of the ministry. He's quoting and feeling a completely different change at the end. Matthew never says that about John. Mark never says it about John. Luke doesn't say it about John, but John says it about John. Why? Because he was loved by God. And he got it. Why is this coming out of his life? Why is he literally writing the words that almost sound arrogant, but in actuality are the epitome of humility? He's coming from a place of identity. He understood who he was. I want you to turn to the person next to you. Are you ready for this? And say, I'm God's favorite. Some people are getting real carried away with that one. I'm God's favorite. Don't look at me like that. Mm-hmm. I said, talk to the hand. You know, I said, go, girlfriend. Come on. You know what I'm saying? It's like all that stuff. You can just see it in some of those people's eyes. They're just like, you know, my dad is the king. It makes me a princess. You know what I'm saying? Except for not me. I'm a prince. Do you know what I'm saying? But here's what's interesting about John. Here's what's interesting about John. Mark chapter 3, verse 17, one of the first connection points that Jesus has with John, guess what he calls John? He calls him the son of thunder. Just so you know, that wasn't meant to be a compliment. He was the son of thunder. Do you want to know why? Luke chapter 9 gives it all away. Verse 54, they're having an issue with some religious people. And guess what John's response is? Jesus, I'm just going to call hellfire down on top of their head and kill them all. Hence the son of thunder, right? The only thing he was thinking 
was anyone that doesn't follow you, Jesus, we're going to kill them. And we're just going to, you know, we're just going to get them right up against the wall and we're going to say, listen, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? Make a choice right now because it's going to happen. But he was the son of thunder. But somehow, something shifted. Something changed. Something adjusted. Something wasn't the same anymore. Remember Jesus' baptism. The father looks down at the son and he says, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. How in the world did the son of thunder go from that to John the Beloved? Because the identity that the son lived in got onto the sonship identity of John with Jesus. He saw, he saw something completely different. He went from being a lion to the lamb, just like, just like Jesus. He got a revelation of his identity. You have to understand this morning, you are valuable to God. Huh. You are valuable to God. He's looking out for you. He, I mean, he's thinking about you all the time. That's what he's thinking about. He cannot help himself. He's thinking about you all the time. One thing I've realized in my life is when you receive the Father's love and you get your identity, number one thing happens is your love for others changes. Those same people that you want to pray hellfire and brimstone on their head, are the people that you start weeping for in prayer at home in your bedroom when no one else sees. And you, got, and you go, God, I don't understand why they're here, and I don't understand what they're doing, and I don't understand why they're upset at me, and God, I don't understand, but I know you know their heart. So, Lord, help me to pray your thoughts over them, not mine. God, help me to get out of self-chair, number two, and pray my will and to pray your will. Amen. Not only will you love others differently, but can I say this morning without sounding weird and all Oprah Winfrey this morning? You're going to love yourself well. You won't have self-love, but you're going to love yourself well. Why? Because when you look in the mirror and you see yourself, you're going to see how Jesus loves you, not how you love you. And as you see how Jesus loves you, it's going to transform your thinking, and you're going to start to see yourself the way God sees you. And then you know what happens is in connection points and in ministry opportunities and conversations and prayer and all these different things, guess what people receive? They don't receive you. They receive Jesus through you because you've gotten out of the way, and you've allowed God to shine forth. John the Baptist literally said, Lord, I pray that I would decrease so that you would increase. Get me out of the way so that they can see you. Matthew 22, 39, I don't have it on the screen, but it literally says, you only love your neighbor as you love yourself. Interesting. Jesus' thoughts, right? John started to see himself the way Jesus saw him because identity was in him. John literally saw himself and loved himself the way Jesus loved him. Amen? So the first key is identity. The second key, which I referenced briefly last week, but I'm going to go into more detail today. The second key is intimacy. Into me see. We already mentioned that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved in John chapter 13. And that event was actually the Last Supper. The Last Supper before, the night before Jesus was to be crucified, the night before Jesus was going to die. 
this was the event. And I want to just make reference of a couple of things here. They're having a wonderful evening. They're probably talking about old memories. You know, they're probably Facebooking their friends and getting them to like and share different things. You know, things like that. And they're all excited about this moment. And then Jesus drops a bomb. As they're having all these just warm, fuzzy feelings, Jesus says, oh, and one of you are going to betray me. What? Can you imagine the tension in the room the moment that was said? Can you imagine what all 12 of them were thinking? Oh, it's not, it couldn't be me. There's no way it could be me. There's no way it's me, right? Who is it? You know, then, the, then of course, in that moment, as soon as he says that comment, every one of them in their mind starts going through their mind. Well, I remember when Jesus had to rebuke Peter, so it's probably him. Yeah, Peter's just so full of himself, you know. Peter's still sitting in chair too. Like, come on. It's got to be, it's got to be Peter. Well, then Thomas, well, he's a doubter. I mean, that's really bad. Although I'm still trying to understand grammatically why we don't say the B. But anyhow, it's okay. But he's a doubter. He's a doubter. So he's out. it got to be him. Well, then there's the old tax collector, Matthew. I mean, what, what in the world? The guy stole money from us. It's got to be him. Like, think about this for a second. Sometimes we read these stories and we don't put ourselves in the midst of it. You have just walked with Jesus for three and a half years. You have literally gone through everything with him. You've, you've left your jobs. You have literally 24-7 with the Son of God. And then he ends off his earthly existence by saying, and when are you going to betray me? I, couldn't we have said that three and a half years ago so we could kind of warm up to it like anything? But no, he just drops the bomb. And I want you to see there's two different responses that happen in that moment. Peter, the brilliant one that he was, sitting in chair two in that moment, leans over to John and says, uh, uh, can you ask the master for us? The person who asks questions only wants to find out God's mind. But John did something different. He leaned in. The Bible says he leaned in and put his head on Jesus' chest. Why? Because the person who leans in wants to know God's heart. Chair three people know how to lean in when there's tension and there's stress and there's circumstances and there's junk. They don't just ask questions to find out information. Those people lean in to hear the heart of Jesus for their situation. They don't care about information. They don't care even about the answer. They just want to lean in to Jesus. Guess who Jesus gave the answer to? Just to give you a hint, it wasn't Peter. It was John. He gave John the answer. Why? Because he's the one that has learned how to lean in. He's leaned in. Jesus entrusted John with what was most valuable to him because he got identity and he got intimacy. He understood it. He understood that his life is nothing without Jesus. He has nothing without him. The third key is what I'm going to call the fellowship of suffering. Sounds really exciting, doesn't it? But in John chapter 19, there's a very interesting situation that happens. We're at the crucifixion. We already read the story. Jesus says to his mother, there's your son. He says to John, there's your mother. Go take care of her. 
and he does. John literally turned his whole life around just to take care of what was most precious to Jesus. But interestingly enough, John was the only disciple, the only one that was at his crucifixion. Where were the others? Well, one of them killed themselves. That's not good. Nine were hiding because they were afraid for their life. Can we say chair two? The other one was wallowing in self-pity because of denying Jesus three times. Chair two. And one of them said, God, wherever you go, Jesus, wherever you go, I'm going to be there. Because this is about relationship. This is about intimacy. This is about identity. This is about being there with you when you're going through your worst. John was the only one there. John was the only one to see him brutalized, murdered, ripped to shreds, mocked, made fun of, and he couldn't do anything about it. But I honestly believe in my heart of hearts that something happened that day in John's heart that went to a whole other level of identity in Christ. You know why? Because he was the only disciple to see Jesus' eyes. Do you know that the eyes are the window to the soul? You can say and tell everything about somebody just looking at their eyes. Just look at them. Some people are struggling in their own self-image and self-identity. They won't even make eye contact with you. They'll look down. They'll look away. Jesus' eyes looked at John. John looked right at Jesus. And you know what he saw? He saw sonship. He saw identity. He saw compassion for humanity like he's never seen before in his life. And it marked his life. He looked at it, and there's no way on the planet he could be the son of thunder when he saw those eyes. There's no way. The only response was to be John the Beloved. That was it. As a result, John was entrusted with what was most valuable to Jesus. The fourth key is this. The fourth key, and this is my last kind of thought. John was not only at the crucifixion. John was the first disciple to see the empty tomb. He beat Peter. He saw the empty tomb. Can I say this morning that when you're sitting in chair three, crucifixion is never final. Because when you're sitting in chair three, you always know resurrection's coming. People who sit in chair two wallow in the crucifixion. This sucks. My life's never changing. I'm never getting ahead. They just self, 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 self. People who sitting in chair three, the, the kingdom of God chair, they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that resurrection life is coming. They live in that. Their hope is in that. Why? Because their hope is not in an event change. Their hope is in the person that can make that change. Because they have a relationship with that person. It changes everything. When you have identity with him, when you have intimacy with him, when you understand his suffering, when you saw his eyes, and those eyes pierced your very soul, and they wrecked you for all eternity, and then you understand the fact that you saw the empty tomb, you understand resurrection life. Everything changes. Everything changes. There's always a sunset, but man, praise God, there's always a sunrise. 
with every crucifixion, in Christ comes a resurrection. Amen? People who sit in chair three will be entrusted with what is most valuable to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want to be that person. I want to be that person so bad. I don't want to miss it. I understand for the first 22 years of my life, I understood religion. I understood duty. I understood obligation. I understood saying amen at the right time. I understood how to play church. I understood how to play church and, and, and make everyone feel like I was all that. But my heart was so far from God. And I know what it was like at 22 years of age to, be, to have the experience of that Father's love that brought identity and sonship to my life that I can honestly say has wrecked me for all eternity. I don't look at life the same way anymore. I don't look at people the same way anymore. I don't look at my circumstances the same way anymore. Why? Because I want to be that chair three people. I want to be that person that's sitting in chair three, super glued to the chair, can't even get off even if I tried. Right? That's what I want. You know what's interesting? And I don't, I mean... I don't want to go down a theological road that I shouldn't go on, but I'm going to make a little, I'm going to, I'm going to just have some creative license for a second. Every other disciple died a martyr, died young. John lived to a very old age, died naturally. I think it was God's blessing because he understood his identity. I think it was God's blessing to say, man, you got it. I'm, I know, and trust me, martyrdom is awesome in, in the sense of it's one of the most honorable things you could ever do. And those other disciples paid for their faith with their life. Praise God for that. But John lived to a very old age. As a matter of fact, the, the five books that he wrote, the book of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation, he all wrote in the last 10 years of his life. But you know what's interesting? Very interesting that the most powerful revelation, prophetic dream and revelation of who Jesus is was given to John right at the end of his life. Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 2. The most incredible picture of Jesus was given to the one that he could entrust with what was most precious to him. Something interesting about John the book of John, that is different than every other gospel. Matthew didn't record any of these thoughts. Mark didn't record any of these thoughts. And Luke didn't record any of these thoughts, but John did. John recorded in his gospel seven I am statements that Jesus made while on the earth that are not referenced in any other gospel at all. Seven I am statements. Why is it that John wrote the book at the end of his life and put emphasis on these seven statements? Why is it that he wrote about them and no one else did? Well, I, I'd like to take a little bit of creative license and say because he understood it better than everybody else. It was personal for him. When Jesus shared those words, it was personal. It was identity making. It was identity shifting. It was identity foundations. It was, it was awesome. And I'm going to read them to you. You're going to hear them and you go, oh, I've heard that verse. Oh, I know about that verse. But these are seven I am statements that Jesus made that John recorded that no one else recorded. Because I honestly believe it was personal for John. John 6.35, it says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. How many want that kind of bread? It's kind of better than Wonder Bread, you know what I'm saying? 
Number two, he's the light of the world. He's the light of the world. He is the light of the world. If you have him, you'll never live in darkness. You're not going to live in a pit trying to figure out what's next. He's gotten you out of the pit. Why? Because he's brought light to your life. He's brought insight and wisdom to your life so that you can see things differently. It's his foundation. The third one is this, John 10, 9. It says, I am the gate. I am the way. Who, he who enters uh, through me will be saved. He, who, he can come in and go out and find pasture. He can find rest. Why? Because Jesus is the gate. Not only is he the gate for you, but he's the protector of the gate. He'll keep other people out. Right? Four, John 10, 11. I find it interesting that of all the things that John, the book of John declared, one of the things that he repeats over and over and over again is Jesus saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because I believe the Jewish nation at that time had a really warped view of who God the Father was. So he says, John 10, verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. Why was it personal for John? Well, you can see his life. He understood the shepherd's care, the shepherd's love, the shepherd's heart. Number five, John eleven twenty five and 26, it says that I am the resurrection and the life. Why? How did he know that? John had this idea that with every crucifixion, there was a resurrection. He lived in that. He understood that resurrection life was a promise of God. Number six, John 14 and 6, it says he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the... Oh, interesting. They use that word. Except through the Son. Except through sonship, daughtership, identity with Him. And the seventh one is John 15, 5. He is the vine. You are the branches. He is the source. You are not. Chair 2 says, I am the source. Chair 3 says, God is the source. You know what's so cool? There's seven revelations that John had of Jesus in the book of John. But when Jesus comes to him and reveals himself at the end of his life and he writes the book of Revelation, the first thing he did is he talked about seven, seven issues in seven churches. And guess what the answer was for all of these seven churches? The seven I am statements. The seven I am statements were the perfect match for the issues that plagued the seven churches in the book of Revelation 2 and 3. Foundation, identity, intimacy, suffering, seeing his eyes, resurrection that always follows a crucifixion. The church, the seven churches in Revelation, it literally talks about the loveless church, church of Ephesus. It talks about the suffering church in Smyrna. It talks about the comp compromising church in Pergamos. It talks about, in Thyatira, it talks about the corrupt church, the Sardis church, which is the dead church, the Philadelphia church, which was the faithful church, and the Laodicean church, which was the lukewarm church. But in every single case scenario, it was about those seven I am statements flipping around and bringing hope to the very issues of those churches. When we understand that he's the bread of life for us, when we understand that he is our light, he is our gate, he's our good shepherd, he's our resurrection, he's the way, the truth, and the life, he is our vine, he's our source, everything changes. Amen? Amen. Interestingly enough, 
when John looked up at Jesus when he was on the cross and Jesus looked down and they made eye contact. Something changed that day. The very story that Jesus was telling at the Last Supper the night before became a reality that his life was broken for many. The bread of life broken for many. Interestingly enough, at that Last Supper, what was it that Jesus gave Judas just before he was about to betray him? Bread. The bread of life gave the bread of life to someone who was going to betray his life. And guess who had an up-close and personal view of that whole thing happening? John. Can we give the bread of life to someone who wants to kill the bread of life, destroy the bread of life, betray the bread of life, disown the bread of life? Can we do that? Can we be entrusted with what is most precious, most valuable to God? Changes everything. Thank you for taking the time to listen to one of our messages from Impact Church. We hope and trust that this message encouraged you. If you want to find out more information about our church, check us out online at www.impactkingston.com. 